0: You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a Principal with Washington National Tax and Tax Industry Lead for U.S. International Corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has the whole world watching in consternation for many reasons. While potential reactions lie along a very wide range, the United States has passed a series of economic sanctions prohibiting Americans from engaging in certain types of transactions with Russia and with certain Russian individuals, the 35 or so Russian oligarchs who have tremendous wealth and socio-political influence in Russia. We thought it might be useful to talk about some of those sanctions, what they look like, how you deal with them, and some of the U.S. tax implications of Russia's reactions against American businesses. Joining me today are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, Stephen Brotherton, a trading customs principal from KPMG's San Francisco office, and Jason Rhodes, a senior manager from our trade and customs practice in Tyson's Corner, Virginia.
1: Thanks, Kim. This is a bit of a different topic for us, isn't it? I know we've covered trade and customs before, but I am looking forward to digging a little bit deeper here. Thanks, Stephen and Jason, for joining us because I think it is so relevant to what's going on in the world right now and so important, I think, for our clients as they tackle these issues. So Jason, what are we talking about
0: in terms of sanctions? What kinds of sanctions could or should or would apply here?
2: So in the past, this would have been a very easy question to answer because the U.S. used to level pretty much consistent sanctions that would just block all activities with a sanctioned party. We are using those now, but the U.S. is also using more selective sanctions that target specific activities, specific sectors of the economy. The US is throwing everything but the kitchen sink at Russia right now. We have import restrictions, export restrictions, financial services restrictions, general services restrictions, and some combination of all of these things.
3: And that's making it really challenging for companies to understand what is permissible with respect to Russia. So you might be able to sell certain goods into Russia, but to be able to collect that money Through financial institutions may be quite challenging.
0: And I would assume, too, that maybe even capitalizing debt or equity, like if you have ongoing operations there, might be a little bit of a challenge?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even just paying your employees in Russia can be challenging. Paying suppliers, all these types of things. That's what companies are facing right now.
0: Okay. And are these restrictions like, we're not going to transact with you at all, there's no cash, there's no financing, there's no funding, there's no buying or selling?
2: Right. There are several sanctions that completely prohibit all activities with a sanctioned party. There are other sanctions that go a step further and say not only can you not do any business with them, you also have to freeze any assets of the business that you come into contact with. And then there are sanctions that only target specific practices or specific transactions.
0: Do you freeze them on behalf of the US government? Presumably, I mean, they're not yours, those assets, are they?
3: Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about it, is that one day they could be. Mm. There is a protocol for how you go about freezing those, holding those, and then asking for the release of those funds, especially if you have a right to them.
0: Oh, so if you happen to be able to export something to Russia because it's not on the sanctions list, then you have trouble getting paid, But even if you do get paid, maybe, possibly, you might not be able to claim the payment, even if it's in your possession. You you can't actually exert any domain control over it until these processes are completed.
3: Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. and. You can imagine the burden that goes along with doing those types of requests and the backlog that would exist within the U.S. government. And there's the whole systems set up within financial institutions to be able to identify and block funds that need to be blocked. Banks have invested millions in how to identify and freeze and block these funds.
1: So is Russia returning the favor and issuing sanctions back against the U.S.?
3: Yeah, we've seen some different flavors of that. It could be, you know, sanctions against U.S. officials. Now, whether it has really any reach and impact is another question, but we have seen some of that behavior from Russia.
2: As well as threatening to seize the property of businesses who are exiting the country due to the sanctions restrictions. So they have taken pretty heavy actions. I think the latter is much more impactful. I don't think that many of our government officials... Have, well, at least public bank accounts in Russia weren't planning on visiting Moscow this week. So, you know, those kind of sanctions will have a limited impact. But the threat to seize property of the companies who are exiting due to the sanctions, you know, that's pretty serious stuff.
0: So, Court, it seems to me that if the Russian government is seizing assets, there's got to be some kind of loss or maybe liquidation, yeah, implications to your CFCs that are sitting in Russia?
1: Right. And I think it's something you really got to keep an eye on, right? So if we think through it a little bit, so if Russian operations are held in a first tier foreign sub under the U.S., I think you have an ability to declare them worthless and use that 165G3 that could get you an ordinary loss treatment for the sub, right? So there we have a chance to get the loss back into the U.S. But if Russia is not held directly by the U.S., I don't think you have an ability to get an ordinary loss. And I think the same is true if you issued debt to the Russian subsidiary, if I'm thinking about this right. So regardless of where the sub is in the chain, first tier or further down.
0: I think that's right, because I think 165G, the the default rule is capital, and it's G3 for the first-tier subsidiary stock that gives you ordinary. And that's just at the shareholder level. So the subsidiary level, maybe get an expropriation type of loss under, I think it's section 1212. I think that's right, right?
1: Okay. So in that case, I think I end up in a capital loss situation for my CFC, and that Mm -hmm. then doesn't count as a tested income for guilty purposes, right, that I would otherwise have in the system. So I'm not sure that's a great answer.
0: I think that's right. You're going to end up with a character mismatch, right? So that's not going to help you at the shareholder level, maybe within the CFC itself. It does help a little bit if you have the ability to net the loss with, say, subpart F gains, like foreign personal holding company income and gains. And then you can eliminate or reduce your net subpart F income. I guess the loss also decreases earnings and profits. So you have less of a potential current inclusion. What is that 952C? Now, I think you've got to recapture later on. And then if the assets are not seized, plus you decide to keep the doors open on your Russian operations, then you need to worry about Russia gets on the naughty list for foreign tax credits, right?
1: That's right. So they could end up kind of in the same bucket then as like a North Korea, Iran, or Syria, like that group of companies.
0: I think that's right. And I think under the code currently, if they got included in that, that would transmogrify that operating income into subpart F income. That's right.
1: All subpart F income, right? So all current. No foreign tax credits. So tax at 21% rate after whatever kind of Russian income tax applies.
0: I think Wyden has a proposal along those lines,
1: doesn't he? I think that's right. So I think that's something that folks should otherwise keep an eye out there as well. And I think there's a bit of progression happening. You kind of go down the chain and get to a spot where, okay, they seized my assets and I can't continue any commercial activities. So there's a potential, it seems like, that I end up in a deemed liquidation situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then if you end up in a deemed liquidation, right, Then the Russian government has maybe effectively triggered a constructive transfer of your assets and a partial satisfaction of any liabilities. And then if I'm thinking through this right, assuming I own enough of the CFC stock, I should qualify for a 332. I think that the challenge there is if you have to see where you are on the spectrum, right, with a lot of things and that what otherwise happens to you in your sub. Yeah, I think the really bad outcome, let's see, is that a really
0: bad outcome, is that you're actually insolvent on a current basis. And because of that, the subsidiary, I think if you're insolvent, you don't qualify for 332. You're in 331 taxable. Or maybe the ownership in the foreign sub is less than 80% you need for 332 liquidation, so you're in taxable. I guess then you trigger built-in gain or loss. Maybe you have built-in gains on the stock. Or maybe, well, I mean, I guess come to think of it, maybe you aren't likely to have built-in gain. Just because no matter how little basis you have in that, you also have very little value. So, hopefully, that's the case if you end up with
1: taxable treatment.
0: But regardless, I think things get pretty complicated pretty quickly.
1: Exactly. I think it's definitely something you got to keep an eye on. And just as things are moving so quickly out there, you know, as things keep changing, it's just something to definitely not lose sight of. How do you know
0: that the things that you can't sell directly into Russia aren't being indirectly sold into Russia through some kind of intermediary?
3: Yeah, there's a whole approach as to understanding resellers, distributors, and the type of diligence that you may require from them. If you're selling to a party and you have no knowledge of or reason to believe that they're selling to Russia, you wouldn't necessarily have liability but it might be their course of dealing with the nature of the parties that they deal with. It might be point of sale reports that they're providing to you that give you some knowledge. And that's typically where you see potential liability coming up with respect to sanctions. I mean, we've certainly seen many cases over the years of all sorts of types of electronics ending up in sanctioned countries. And the question is, well, how did it get there? And those companies aren't generally liable if they didn't have knowledge that it was being delivered into that country.
0: Is that both with respect to intercompany sales as
3: well as third-party sales? Well, the knowledge would be attributed to the company in general. Mm. So if it's an affiliate delivering those goods into Russia, that's not going to help you. Mm-hmm. But certainly if it's unrelated party delivering those goods into Russia, you had no knowledge of it or reason to believe if there was delivery into Russia, that's where you might not have liability.
0: So maybe that's where if you have a rep and warranty that the goods will not ultimately be delivered by that counterparty into Russia. As long as you don't actually have actual knowledge that they are violating that rep and warranty later on, maybe that's a way to go. You got it. You know, the thing that worries me a little bit is that with respect to sanctions that identify people that you're not allowed to transact with, I guess it's not just the people, right? It's the entities that those people may have financial interests in?
3: Yeah, that's right. Some of the sanctions have rules. One of them stems from the Treasury's OFAC, Office of Foreign Assets Control. The rule is basically that a sanctioned party, while any other party that is 50% or more owned by that party, is also subject to those same sanctions. So you really need to look at that individual and then map out how deep that touch goes with that, what we call the 50% rule. There's a different type of rule in the EU that goes more to control. And so this really leads to not only looking at the list, but conducting deeper diligence to understand the connections. And this is where it gets really complicated, especially with Russia.
0: And Steve, I guess a question to you is, would a company, let's say that it's contracting with A foreign person, would they be able to rely on reps and warranties that that entity is not controlled by anyone on the naughty list? Or do they actually have to go through some level of deeper due diligence?
3: Well, the thing that the rules don't say what diligence you need to do, the rules say you can't deal with this particular party. Mm -hmm. And it's strict liability. Mm. So do you feel Good enough by relying on a rep and warranty because if that party is in fact misrepresenting, you are liable. And then being able to try to recover from that party for any damages may be very difficult. (laughs) And also, you know, whatever you do recover may be be blocked. So,
0: (laughs) Is it buy side as well as sell side? Yes. Those account systems, I mean, they're just not equipped to handle that. And having to go through your massive vendor base and then your massive customer base and figure that out, not just matching against the names on the list, but the hidden interests that those names on the list might have in the entities within those pools, that's really difficult.
3: And this is where it gets really complicated, especially with Russia. And we've seen it with oligarchs, we've seen it with others, where there may be a very significant web that can be difficult to understand. And so you may be thinking that, oh, this party is not on the list. It's okay to do business with them, but not fully understanding that there's this other rule that requires you to do more diligence to understand ownership or control.
0: I feel like the financial institutions have had this for a little while, right? So court, like in the FATCA and IGA scenarios, you go to open a bank account and there is kind of the know your customer types of rules. There's the who are the beneficial owners of these accounts. Now, there are exceptions. If you have a quote unquote good status at the end of the level that may stop you from having to understand what the ultimate individual owners are, but at least they have some kind of construct. Outside of that financial sphere though, I feel like people don't really have a good handle on how to get that due diligence done.
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple areas where maybe we do see it as we think through conflict minerals or other areas where I have to go a little further up and down the chain to figure out where I am. But I think you're right on the, from a financial perspective, it seems like it would be an easy ad to say, have a, if there was a blacklist or something like that, that would otherwise come into play. But I'm not aware of anything right now that otherwise would get picked up there.
3: It's somewhat like a, grenade in a corporate compliance program because the impact in being able to respond and do the diligence that's required just to understand if there are restrictions is really significant.
2: There's technology, you know, before when everything was list-based, it was really easy. You check the list. If they're on the list, you don't do business. If they're not on the list, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Now you have to actually think about ownership. Who owns the third parties that you're dealing with? And That's not so easy to find on a list. There are screening services providers who are developing so-called 50% lists that companies can use to screen, to find these ownership connections. And it's still difficult. It's not a cure-all, but it greatly helps.
1: Jason, what is the size that we might expect to see in this penalty space if we run afoul of these rules?
2: If there's an actual civil penalty assessed, they range from very minimal amounts up to, I believe it is $330,000 or so, or twice the underlying transactional value, whichever is greater. So they can grow quite big.
0: Right. And if you're talking about something like chemicals, they don't tend to be little transactions, kind of almost by nature. They're big transactions with a lot of transactional value. So you're going to want to figure that out sooner rather than later, I
2: expect. Absolutely. And even small transactions, if you've got a number of them and you're getting $330,000 per transaction that maybe you sent a $50 part uh, <laughs> and, and you sent 200 of them, in theory, you can have a really big fine.
1: Jason, if companies get caught for violating sanctions, does that become public information in any way?
2: I would say the vast majority of sanctions violations that the regulator deals with are not public. But you see these public announcements of penalties and settlement agreements. You'll see them in the newspaper. The impact of publishing a case has oftentimes a lot more oomph than the actual penalty amount. You know, your reputational damage. Usually when the regulators publish a penalty, they're looking to educate the public not only on what happened, but on what the risks are and how to mitigate those risks. They use these penalties as an educational tool. They make examples of you. And you don't want to be the next company that gets made an example of
0: tell you what else you don't want to be. You don't want to be in a whistleblower situation. I think that would be the absolute worst. So I would expect that the messaging from the top of the house that trickles down through your supply chain and your logistics folks, through treasury and finance, the consistency of that messaging is going to help you if you end up with foot faults because you are trying. And if something slips, that's not great. But its footfall.
2: And to your point, I think it's critical that companies have very clear and well known escalation channels for issues that are identified because you're more likely to get a whistleblower who probably tried to report something internally or they did report it and it just didn't get to the right person. So having those clear escalation channels that people know about is really critical
0: an incredibly difficult situation from
2: the human side, and a very complicated
0: situation from the commercial perspectives, which is not going to uncomplicate itself anytime soon. Our thoughts and prayers go out to those in Ukraine. And in the meantime, be good, stay well, we'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X, thanks so much for tuning in, we look forward to speaking to you next time.